Well, we are in the book of Jude. Once again this morning, we're going to look at the second verse. But before we get there, if you would join your hearts with me together and let's pray. Lord, your word says that the entrance of it brings light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Help us this morning, Lord, as we listen to these things to bow before your word. Would you grant, Holy Spirit, please strength to the preacher, ears to hear, hearts to believe, eyes to see the glory of this passage, the glory of your truth. Lord, grant these things for the good of the church, for the glory of your name. In Christ's name I ask, amen. Well, Jude is the second to, or next to last book in the Old Testament. So if you are not familiar where Jude is, find Revelation, go to the right. If you hit maps, bump, bump two books back. So, um, so Jude, uh, in our last time together in the book of Jude, we saw something of the author of the epistle and we considered himself and what he considered himself to be and we shared a, a word in that sermon that may have been a little bit controversial uh, in most English Bibles it is translated Jude a servant of Jesus Christ but in the original text Jude is calling himself something much more profound he's calling himself a slave and we saw what he wanted us to think about ourselves. He wanted us to consider who we are in Christ. We are called, we are beloved in God the Father, and we are kept for Jesus Christ. And we discovered in each of these things there's really something very essential to those things as a believer, as we contend for the faith. If we're going to enter the fray of defending the gospel, contending for the faith, the first thing Jude says is we have to know who we are. If we don't know who we are, we can't fight in the right way. Now, if we, as we come to the second verse in Jude, I want to begin with sort of a question, maybe a little bit of a diagnostic question for our hearts. If you were to prepare for a theological battle... Or if you were to prepare someone else for a theological battle, for a controversy, what would you pray for them? What would you pray for yourself? What would be your greatest wishes for that person or for yourself? Well, Jude gives us three things that we ought to think about that we need in theological controversy. Now, if you remember, this letter is written to the church universally. It's not written to a particular church. It was written really to encourage and warn the churches against false teachers. False teachers, false believers were in their midst. They were lurking in the, in the shadows of the churches. They were infecting the church with false doctrine. And Jude writes to warn the believers that the enemy was within her ranks. And it posed a great threat. So we're going to consider this text, Jude 2, verse 2, in five points. First, we're going to notice Jude's prayerful salutation. 
Second, we're going to notice his wish for mercy. Third, his wish for peace. Fourth, his wish for love. And lastly, that he wants these things to be multiplied in us. So, we'll read the text. Jude, verse 2. Jude says, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, as we begin, notice that this is an appeal to the Lord. This is an appeal to God. It is a prayer. And this is not a stereotypical salutation or prayer. No greeting in the New Testament is without thought. And Jude is very, very thoughtful here. By the Spirit's leading, we have three key ingredients fit for us who have been called to contend for the faith. These blessings, these mercies, this peace, this love is woven throughout the fabric of this epistle and their fundamental themes throughout. So if we miss these things up front, the rest of the epistle is not going to make much sense. The Christian possesses each of these things, and Jude wishes that they would be multiplied in us. He wishes us to be people of mercy, people of peace, and people of love. But notice here the appropriateness of the prayer for the times. Again, what's the context in which Jude is writing? It's theological controversy. It's apostasy. It's false doctrine within the church. Religion was full at that time of loose Christians. The church suffered from worldly doctrine. Men, as verse 4 says, had crept in unnoticed. And nothing was more needful in Jude's mind during these times than mercy, peace, and love. But also notice here what I like to call the Trinitarian formula of his prayer. Do you see it? The Trinitarian formula of his prayer. Just as in verse 1, we're called by the Spirit, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, so here Jude sees that we need mercy from God the Father. 2 Corinthians 1.3 calls him the Father of mercies. We need peace from the Son of God, whom Paul says in Ephesians is our peace. And we need love from the Spirit who, as Paul says in Romans 5, sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. This is a Trinitarian prayer for the church. Jude's prayer is both wise and eminently theological. We must take note. Far from being impractical for us, the Trinity is something that actually offers us much comfort, much hope, and gets us through a lot of troubled times if we understand uh, what those things mean. Mercy from the Father, peace from the Son, love from the Spirit. Now let me say this at the outset before we dig in. None of these things for the Christian, none of these things make a believer compromise the truth or soften or silence him in the face of heresy. Mercy does not make a man compromise the truth. A peaceful-hearted man does not make him compromise the truth. And a loving man does not make him compromise the truth. What we'll find, hopefully, in this epistle is these things make a Christian hardy. They make a Christian rugged. They make him durable. But at the same time, they make him sweet and inviting and approachable. So what does it mean that we need mercy? First necessity, Jude says, is we need 
mercy. Mercy be multiplied to you, he says. Mercy is mentioned several times in Jude's letter and serves as really a bookend to the letter. He mentions it here in the beginning, and he mentions it at the end. And it will be vital for us to understand at the outset. Have mercy on those who doubt, Jude says in verse 22. Well, what is, what is mercy? Mercy is a term that characterizes God as revealed to us. And it's a very significant theme in Scripture. In the Old Testament, it's most frequently represented by the term hesed. You've heard that word, right? Hesed, God's loving kindness, sometimes literally translated his bowels of mercy, the very sympathetic region of God, something that comes from deep within his core. Mercy is a, a disposition toward the creature considered as sinful and miserable in sin. Mercy is pity toward one suffering for guilt. It is the goodness of God when shown to those in in the misery of sin. Mercy is the very revelation of God's name, Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. God is called the Father of mercies, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Mercy is represented in Scripture as God's delight and pleasure, and it's the one great thing that sets him apart from the false gods. Micah seven eighteen says this, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in hesed, mercy, steadfast love. Now, from a creation standpoint, the psalmist says that mercy is over all of his works, Psalm 145, verse 9. All of providence, all of the unfolding works of God's hand show him to be merciful. Think about it as you drove here this morning. There was mercy in your commute. There's mercy in that cup of coffee I had this morning. There's mercy in a sunrise. There's mercy in the sweetness of an orange. There's mercy in the bitterness of an unripe persimmon. You've had that experience? Don't eat those things. There's mercy in skint knees. There's mercy in my bread. There's mercy in my drink. There's mercy everywhere. Psalm 145 says his mercy is over all of his works. There is nothing, beloved, absolutely nothing in the world that is communicated to us from God apart from mercy. Not a single thing. I would would challenge you to find the thing in your life that is not linked to God's mercy, somehow, some way. Mercy is over all his works. And could we imagine a world without mercy? Can you imagine your life without mercy? What kind of place would this world be without the mercy of God? If we got what we actually deserved. If we're aware, if we're listening, if we're looking, we can trace back God's mercy to everything everything. 
It's the fountainhead of all of God's dealings with us, the mercy of God. Regarding our salvation, we most strongly see the mercy of God in giving the Lord Jesus Christ. We, as believers, are recipients of this mercy. We're recipients of covenant mercy. It's an exceptional and experiential fact in the Christian's life. We have received mercy. It's mercy that made God summon you to salvation. Every messenger of the truth in your life has been a mercy of God. Every warning against sin is a mercy of God. Every prayer of a loved one who offered your soul up to the throne of grace is a mercy of God. Every sermon, however unclear, is a mercy of God. Every means used by God to draw you to himself is a mercy of God. Isaiah 118, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. That's mercy. Revelation twenty two seventeen. let the one who thir- is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price come. That's mercy. It's mercy that made him summon you to salvation. It's mercy that made him ready to receive you as a sinner. It's said of the prodigal's father that when the prodigal son was returning, his father did what? He arose. Seeing his son a long way off, he felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. He was, God is, ready to receive from you to return back, and he's ready to receive you from a heart of mercy. Isaiah relates it this way, before they call, I will answer. That's how God, that's how ready God is to receive sinners. Before they even call to me, I will answer. It's mercy that endured with you for a long, long time in your rejection of the truth. Think about your life before Christ. It's mercy that endured with you for a very long time in your rejection of the truth. Romans 2.4 Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's why God doesn't destroy the wicked immediately, because he's a God of mercy. He endures for a long time those who reject him. It's a mercy that he sent his son to die on the cross for you. Now, this is the chief expression of mercy. All we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah says. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's mercy. That is mercy. And if you've yet to own Christ, if you are here this morning without Christ, mercy in your life will one day rise as a witness against you. Mercy is the cause of all the good that you enjoy. If you make mercy your enemy here, it will surely be your enemy there. When mercy no longer pleads your cause, but it pleads against you. 
His mercy is over all his works, beloved. And if you are without him, I beg you, turn to the Lord. Receive the mercy of God in Christ. Mercy for the believer is a a vital indicator of a transformed life. The Beatitudes call us the merciful. That's not necessarily what we do, but who we are. It's a description of our character. We are called the merciful. And being so described, we're called to imitate the God of mercy. Be merciful, Luke 6.36 says. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. If we have received mercy, we have to display mercy. We cannot display it if we have never received it. When asked who was truly a good neighbor to the man who fell upon robbers in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the answer was given, the one who showed mercy. Who was a good neighbor? The one who showed mercy. Jesus replied in unmistakable fashion, go and do likewise. As one theologian puts it, the evidence of God's mercy in your life is not how many books you read, but by your active goodness to people in misery and in need. This is the mercy of God, and we are called to be people of mercy. But the question has to be asked, why is mercy necessary as we contend for the faith? Why is it necessary that we contend for the faith? Well, it is dangerously easy, dangerously easy, while contending for the faith to become cynical, detached, and hard-hearted. If we don't see the greatness of the mercy of God toward us, we will not be moved in mercy toward those in error, even those who are believing heresy, in any hope of change. Why is mercy necessary? I'm going to start a list. I'm going to start a list, and I want you to complete it. I want you to add to these things as you think on the word of God, what is necessary? Why is mercy necessary? Well, I think first and foremost, mercy is fit for every occasion. As we'll discover later in this epistle, mercy is hearty enough. It's big enough that it's a fitting application for dealing with all the various types of people we'll meet in life. When we contend for the faith, mercy meets the doubting, meek person in one way. Jude even says that, have mercy on those who doubt. And it meets that hardened and perverse man in another way. Have mercy with fear, Jude says, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. But make no mistake about it. Mercy is fitting and is needed on every occasion. It's fitting for every circumstance we meet with. Mercy is also at the heart of true wisdom. James 3 says as much. The wisdom from above is full of mercy, full of mercy. We may have learned truths that we hold dearly about the Christian faith, 
But whether or not we've rightly used those truths is a matter of wisdom. With all the courage we can muster, sitting behind your, your keyboard, you truth warriors, you, you may be able to serve the truth double-barreled, point-blank to those in error. Someone is wrong on the Internet. I must let them know. But are you acting wisely? Are you acting wisely? Do you have to answer every Twitter? Do you have to answer every false thing on Facebook? Has God called you to be that? Are you acting wisely? Well, Luke 7.35 says wisdom is known by her children. Proverbs 25.11 says a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. We must not only be concerned with what we say, but the time and place in which we say it. That's true wisdom. It's never unwise, beloved, to show mercy. It's never unwise to show mercy. James says as much. Wisdom from above is full of mercy. Mercy is at the heart of true wisdom. Well, another thing. Mercy keeps us from the harsh and irritable spirit of a Pharisee. The spirit of a Pharisee is merciless. It's merciless. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected Weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The spirit of a Pharisee doesn't know how to balance nuance and detail with mercy. They don't know how to balance those things. It's an argumentative spirit. Under the guise of concern for truth, they do nothing but wait and pounce on anyone, waiting for someone to teeter with their word. They make Christian churches worse, not better. And what we must be free, beloved, from hypercriticism and an irrational, impatient, and judgmental spirit. We have to be people of mercy even when we're contending for the faith. A heart of mercy keeps us balanced. It pushes into the nuance, but it also shows compassion upon those who are misled. It keeps us from being distracted by personal disagreements or wrongly blending our own preferences with the truth. Pharisees have no mercy. They are merciless. Christians must and do. So mercy keeps us from the harsh an irritable spirit of a Pharisee. But mercy also keeps us tenderly prayerful as we contend for the faith. Even when we're staring at a man face to face and we may see the judgment of God upon that person as clear as day, there is hope that God will relent. He's still breathing. Listen to Jeremiah 18. If at, any time, if any time, at any time, God through the prophet Jeremiah says, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy, 
And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster I intended to do to it. Amid judgment, we can be prayerful that God remembers mercy, that he remembers mercy. We ought always to pray this way, beloved, always. Well, we have to be a people of mercy, and that's just a little snippet there, a little, a little peek into that. As we contend for the truth, we have to be people of mercy. I'll sum it up this way. Without mercy, we are not contending. We're just contentious. There's a big difference. Without mercy, we're not contending for the faith. We're just being contentious. We're just being a cantankerous people. We have to have mercy. Second thing, Jude says, a necessity for contending for the faith is peace. Peace. Mercy is the fountainhead of the good things of God and most necessary for contending for the faith. And what flows out of that? When we've experienced the mercy of God, what kind of people do we become? People of peace. People of peace. The mercy of God leads us to peace, and you praise for these things. Think about the nature of heresy. What does heresy do? The Greek word really means to divide. It separates things. It breaks things apart. And Jude prays for peace because peace is a a uniting thing. It unites people together. Heresy has the potential to draw members of the church into a web of sin and judgment. So what is peace? Peace is the result of God's mercy. It's the result of being reconciled to God. Now, unlike when you hear the word peace, you probably think just strictly in emotional terms. I have tranquility in my heart. My my heart is at rest. And that's true. But biblical peace also carries with it the idea of being whole, being sound, being complete. Peace is a condition that's free from strife. You have security from your enemies as well as that emotional component, the calmness of your heart. And the gospel brings all of those things, beloved. The gospel brings all of those things. So consider these things regarding peace. Consider first and foremost the fact of your peace. Mankind, you and I, by nature, are hostile to God. We're children of of wrath by nature. God is at war with us, and we are at war with God. I would argue that creation itself is at war with the unbeliever and is at God's beck and call to execute justice. But the gospel declares the war is over. The gospel declares the war is over. The treaty has been signed in blood and cannot be removed. Christ has obtained a cosmic redemption. This peace, beloved, is is an immovable state in which we live under the gospel. It's immovable. Your peace with God is secure. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God is now to us the God of peace. The record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands has been canceled. It's set aside Christ being nailed to the cross. Holy angels of war, think about this, are now ministering spirits sent out to serve for our peace, Hebrews 1.14. Heaven was against you at one time. The holy angels of God were against you. And they've been turned now to peaceful ministering spirits. We now find heaven and earth at peace with us. Whatever troubles us now is no longer for our destruction, but for our sanctification. Peace cannot be removed any more than the work of Christ can be removed. That is the fact of our peace. It has been won by Christ. But consider the sense of peace. Having peace with God secured by Christ The tension is dropped between God and man, but it's also dropped between man and himself. In himself, the Christian now has a sense of peace. Sin, as one theologian says, is a mutiny within our own heart. Man and his conscience are at odds with each other. Conscience is that that soul reflecting on itself. And being reconciled to God, conscience reflecting on itself, we find peace in our conscience, peace in our soul. The guilt of sin is gone. The guilt of sin is gone, beloved. Isaiah 57, 21 makes it clear, there is no peace for the wicked. But we are people of peace. We not only have it as a fact, we have experienced those things. But also we have peace and a sense of peace between ourselves and God. God is no longer a far-off enemy waging war against us, but we now find him to be a close friend, a lover of our souls, making his very home with us, John 14, 23, communing with us, enjoying us, and we enjoying him. He reveals the secrets of his heart to us. And we share the care of our hearts with him. And he tells us that he works all things together for our good. Because we now have peace with him. And we feel a sense of that. But also we have an expectation of peace. This sort of peace that we experience, that we know is a fact, gives us a future expectation. That what we experience here will be wholly enjoyed there. Heaven is perfect peace as one writer says the new Jerusalem is all quiet and eternal Sabbath if our hopes are expectantly set there this fact does much to help us behave like a people of peace here now all of these things do much to train the heart to act in a way that's pleasing to God and useful to man peace declares one thing All is well. The war is over. But why is peace, we have to ask the question, 
Why does Jude say peace is necessary as we contend for the faith? Well, I think first and foremost, peace settles us. When we experience the peace of God, it settles us. John 14, 22, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. We are no longer marked as a troubled soul. We're settled. And peace settles us. It settles us in the fact that God is always with us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're never alone. It settles us in the fact that Christ has overcome the world. Our victory has been won. It settles us that the fact, in the fact that the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. The gospel is powerful enough to push through the gates of hell itself. They will not prevail. And that's a settling fact. Christ will build his church. But peace also affords us calmness of mind. It settles us and it affords calmness of mind. In the midst of theological controversy, in the midst of fighting battles, we could say it could be very confusing. War can be very confusing. It upsets the mind. It makes things foggy. A friend of mine, a former state trooper, uh, has told me that in a firefight, and he's been in a few, he said, training kicks in, and you just move through certain motions as if it were second nature. All the training kicks in. Isaiah 26, 3 through 4, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Being trained by peace We're able to contend for the faith and keep a calm mind in the midst of it. Peace affords us calmness of mind. Peace grants us rest. There is nothing more draining than war. There's something mysterious and marvelous about sleep. Um, It's regenerative in a way. It restores your body. It repairs things. We're called to contend, but we're not called to sit up and watch in fear, right? We're not called to jump at the rustling of a leaf. We're not called to be hypersensitive. Maybe Spurgeon could add some clarity to what I'm saying. He says this, armed men kept the bed of Solomon. But we do not believe that he slept more soundly than his father David, whose bed was the hard ground and who was haunted by bloodthirsty foes. A quiet conscience is a good bedfellow, and there is no pillow as soft as a promise. David wrote these words, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Peace grants us rest. There can be probably nothing more draining on this earth than fighting through a theological controversy. Peace grants us rest. Peace makes us humane. War is inhumane. Natural war is inhumane. War can make a man regard another man as a dog or an animal to be slaughtered. War can bring a man into a... uh, An animal state, we could say. Theological war 
can make a man consider his opponent as an argument to be destroyed rather than a soul to be pleaded with. Do you get that? There's the argument before me. I must destroy the argument. Peace makes us humane. When we're marked by peace, we treat even our enemies as image bearers of God. In this way, peace affords us the correct consideration of our opponent. Peace makes us humane in the midst of war. Peace also allows us to offer what I call conciliatory remarks. Remarks that quell the heart, that put down the fires of the enemy's heart. And it also allows us to make concessions where concessions can be granted. Peace makes us consider words that pacify our enemy's heart, not stir them up. We may not address the person's heresy at that time, but eventually. I've met many Christians, and I was, I'm still struggling with this, but I used to be really terrible at it. They have to correct everything in someone's thinking right then and there as you interact with them. Not remembering that it's in no way how God dealt with them in all of their error. Some are so bent on proving another person wrong that they can never find it in themselves to agree with their opponent on something as obvious as the color of the sky. Have you ever met someone so argumentative, so closed off to concession that if the enemy looked at them and said, the sky is blue, they'd go, no, it's not. No, it's not. If your opponent says, the sky is blue, agree. You have lost nothing. Being a people of peace affords us to grant concessions where concessions can be given. It's all in the hopes of winning them to Christ. Do you get that? It's all in the hopes of winning them to Christ. You're losing nothing. Peace grants us the ability to navigate those conversations, to avoid the landmines, and gets us right to the center of the person's heart. Are we a people of peace in this way? Are we just hacking down everybody's error every time we find it? No man can successfully contend for the faith without these markers of peace being somehow, some way manifest in their life. Listen to the Proverbs. When a man's way pleases the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. When a man's way pleases the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Well, that's the issue of peace that Jude addresses. What about love? We've considered mercy. We've considered peace. What now of love? Well, from mercy comes peace, and from peace comes love. What is this? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Baby, don't hurt me no more. I heard you sing that in your brain. Some of you get what I'm talking about. What is love? Love is the sum of true heart religion, true Christianity. Colossians 3.14 says, Love binds all things together in perfect harmony. Love fulfills the law. Romans 
The end of the commandment is love that issues from a pure heart, 1 Timothy 1.5. If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well, James 2.8. And according to Romans 5.5, 5, it is the love of God that has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Love is the greatest commandment, Jesus says in Matthew 22. And it's not only a privilege to love our neighbor, but it's a duty. It's a duty. Our Lord has told us as much. And when we contend for the faith, beloved, we have to do it in love. Probably one of the most convicting chapters in the entire Bible is not passages on the wrath of God. It's 1 Corinthians 13 on the love of God. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, Paul says, and I have not love, what have I become? A noisy gong, a clanging cymbal, useless, he's saying. If we destroy our opponent and win the day, that man will go home corrected in the name of the Lord. Yet we have lost warmth and love for him. We have lost everything. We've lost everything. We have won nothing at the end of the day without love. Period. We may have reason to boast to ourselves and among men. We may gain a few Twitter followers. But we've achieved nothing eternally. If you want what you do to end up on the ash heap of eternal insignificance, do it without love. Just do it without love. We have to ask ourselves whether we love arguments or whether we love souls. This is what's at stake with Jude. We're going to cover some very difficult territory. And Jude has some very stern words. But he encourages us right up front, mercy, peace, and love must be ours as we contend for the faith. Well, I want to share with you a little bit of a snippet from uh, John Newton's life. It stirred my heart nearly every time I've read it, and I hope to share more of this man's remarkable life with you because I think he exemplifies what we're talking about here. The chief mark, uh, some, some have said, of Newton's life was one of love. Some would argue that Newton loved to a fault. Now, if you've ever read Newton at length, you kind of pick this up in everything you read of him. He could hardly find fault in someone for love. It's almost to a fault. You, you get that bent. But I think he exemplifies for us contending for the faith and doing it with mercy, doing it with peace, and doing it with love. He was, we could say, velvet and steel. He was tough and he was tender all at the same time. Newton makes this remark, which, again, I found to be characteristic of his preaching and other writings. He says this, speaking of lost men. Whoever has tasted of the love of Christ and has known by his own experience the need and the worth of redemption is enabled. Yea, he is constrained to love his fellow creatures. He loves them at first sight. 
And if the providence of God commits a dispensation of the gospel and care of souls to him, he will feel the warmest emotions of friendship and tenderness while he beseeches them by the tender mercies of God and even while he warns them by his terrors. Love at first sight? Did you catch that? Doesn't he know the pastor down the street's a heretic? Doesn't he know the church down there is bonkers? Doesn't he know I've lived my entire life with this massive list of qualifications before I can begin to love someone? Love them at first sight? What is that? Doesn't he know love takes time? There's something totally unnatural to the flesh about this sort of love. That's supernatural love. I want to love like that. It's a high and holy calling, beloved. I cannot shake our Lord's simple yet infinitely profound statement, love your enemies. Love your enemies. We have to ask ourselves, what checklist an enemy must satisfy for us to love him? That's what Newton is after. Must he be safe for me to love him? Is our love so weak that we can't stand to love any other but those who, are, who don't pose a threat to us? Must he be of my ecclesiastical persuasion? Must he be my theological twin? Is our thinking so weak that we can't endure a conversation outside of our well-guarded think tank? We're called to love biker gangs and heretics. We're called to love prostitutes and fake preachers. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that of you? For even sinners love those who love them. What makes your love different than the world's love? What prerequisite does the enemy meet to be loved by you? Jesus says he only has one prerequisite. He's your enemy. He's your enemy. Understanding this is the only way we can attempt to love our enemies. We must render good for evil. This sort of love keeps us from a very dark and obvious fact of war. It's revenge. Matthew Henry says this. The Son of Man is not himself come, and therefore does not send you abroad to destroy men's lives, but to save them. He designed to propagate his holy religion by love and sweetness in everything that is inviting and endearing, not by fire and sword and blood and slaughter. Christ would have his disciples do good to all, to the utmost of their power, but hurt no one. To draw men into his church with the bands of love, but not think to drive men into it with the scourge of the tongue. Jude sees love as absolutely essential for contending for the faith. And as we close, he says these things must be multiplied. They must be multiplied among you.
Judah set the tone. He set the tone for us. He set the tone for our lives. He set the tone for the rest of the epistle. And it's clear why he prays that these things be multiplied in us. We don't only need them, beloved. We need them in abundance. You cannot have too much mercy. You cannot have too much peace. You can't have too much love for God or for sinners. I don't think there's a single Christian who would say they've had enough of the experience and expression of these things in their life. If we are lacking these things, it is our own fault. God stands ready, ready, ready to supply them to us. We who boast in these things ought to be the best exporters of these things among a lost and dying world. May God grant it to be. And beloved, as we go, may we spread the benediction of God over all the earth. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, if I preach to no one this morning, I preach to myself. May you multiply mercy and peace and love in my heart, oh God, in the hearts of my brothers and sisters here, at, that we may be the, the most useful in this world to reach out to lost and dying sinners, to plead with heretics to repent of their error and come to Christ, to be patient to be merciful, and God help us to love at first sight. In Christ's name I ask, amen.